Support for An Honest Account comes from Open Money, who are making financial advice affordable and accessible to everyone. Open Money offer personalised financial advice online by asking you a few questions and telling you about the next steps for your money. That could be working down debt, saving a cash buffer or investing. Then they give you the tools and advice to help you move forward with your finances through their app and online portal. If investing is the right move for you, they'll give you investment advice and the option to speak to a qualified financial advisor. You can begin with as little as £1. Their low annual fees means you can keep more of your money. You can download the app today or head to open-money.co.uk for more details. And please remember that with all investing, the value can go down as well as up. And thanks to Open Money. Welcome to An Honest Account, a podcast about how money affects our lives, our work, health, relationships and more. I'm Rachel Revis, a financial journalist, and today I'm talking to the truly inspiring Zara Nanu. Zara is the CEO and founder of GapSquare, which uses data to revolutionise how companies calculate their gender pay gap. We're approaching this topic from a slightly different angle why you shouldn't ask for a pay rise, or why you shouldn't have to. Why is the burden always on individuals? And what can we do to make systemic change instead? So thank you so much, Zara, for joining me today. Um, As I was saying earlier, there's so much to talk about, so I'm going to try and and not (laughs) go on some tangent. But it would be great if we could just start off... um, if you could just explain briefly a little bit about a bit more about what Gap Square does and what was the intention and how that changed because you said something about it evolving over time. Yeah, so we set up Gap Square about four years ago when the World Economic Forum released a report and said it will be 217 years until the gender pay gap closes. And at the same time, you see other reports that talk about us being in self-driving cars by 2030 or going on to Mars. And somehow when we're doing all these things and have all these technological and data advancements, we're still 200 years away from achieving pay parity. So uh, we thought, is there a way in which we can actually link that innovation and technology and data with helping accelerate progress around um, gender pay gap uh, and closing the gap by 2030? So we've set out on that journey, initially just looking at the gender pay gap and have in time actually moved more into the fair pay space because we saw how many more intricacies there are to pay and equality at work and how, for instance, being a woman of colour can impact you even more uh, in terms of pay, in terms of career progression. And all of these characteristics need to be looked at holistically in order to understand how we can facilitate more inclusive workplaces for everyone. So we've advanced now into a space where we develop software to help businesses make the most of their data to understand how they can create those inclusive workplaces, how they can become more equal for everyone so that people can make the most of their potential. Mm. And we talked about this before and how if they don't have these kind of software what, they're just using Excel spreadsheets and doing kind of head counts of who is in the room and that's not really getting down to understanding why 
they have certain problems and how they can fix them. Absolutely. And I think a, a very good example of this is Salesforce. So a couple of years ago, uh, the CEO of Salesforce was approached by some senior women in the company who said, we believe there's a gender pay gap in Salesforce. Can you help us look into it? Um, he was quite confident that there isn't a gender pay gap, appointed some consultants to do an equal pay audit, which used that kind of the method of taking an Excel spreadsheet and looking at everyone and came back with the fact that A, there is a, a pay gap, and B, they will need about $3 million to cover that gap. So they sourced the money, they they covered the gap, and about a year later, they decided to undertake a new exercise to assess where things are um, in hope that it will be zero pay gap. And when they did that second exercise a year later, the gap needed another million dollars to close that gap because within the span of a year for a large organization, a lot of movement happens. And when that movement happens in a in a biased organization, in an organization where structures have been set up to not necessarily help facilitate and advance women or ethnic minorities, then you get to build up back to that gap quite quickly. Mm. So just looking at a one-off Excel spreadsheet may be helpful at that one point in time, but it's not helpful even the next day because someone has left, someone has been appointed into a new role, someone has been advanced into into a new role. Mm. So you mentioned those structures. So what are examples of like a systemic structure that might be holding someone back? I think there's there's so I can talk about the data that we've seen mm-hmm. through Gap Square because we've now seen data for about a million uh, employees in different roles in in different regions of the UK but also outside the UK and there's some barriers first and foremost around occupational segregation where we still think about some roles more suitable for men and some roles more suitable for women um, and it's also role segregation so it's in thinking about when you think about a director the the stereotype is still that it will be the white male middle class person taking that role if you think about a head of a department that is still the case for many organizations and data still shows us that there are quite a few organizations where we've seen that they systematically recruit and appoint new people from outside the organization in senior roles within different departments rather than actually taking a deeper dive into their existing talent where they can appoint someone internally to grow into that role. Um, There's also, uh, data is also pointing out to um, the part-time, full-time and flexible working kind of uh, data points where organizations are still set up in a way that encourage that kind of full-time working insane amounts of hour a week kind of work culture and therefore it promotes individuals in those who are who are doing that into future roles uh, and career progression. Did you see that ad, advert, the job advert from Dominic Cummings saying he wants to get weirdos and misfits into his office and you've got to, you won't have time for a romantic partner. <laughs> it just perfectly encapsulates that culture, doesn't it? Absolutely. And it was actually interesting. There was news came out yesterday that the Bank, the, the bank of England was recruiting a governor. So they had, I think it was 22 applications and only two were women. So my, my initial go-to was to look at the job description and actually see how was that job description framed 
that it warranted for the kind of the application, such a male-dominated pool of candidates. Um, and interestingly enough, I ran it through Gender Decoder, which is this website where you can run job ads through, and it tells you if the ad is coded as fem feminine or if it's coded as masculine. And it's actually coded as feminine. And then when you start looking more, like you start looking deeper into that ad, it had photos of the team and it's predominantly male. It had a lot of sides to it that was actually talking about a culture where you work a lot of hours, where you are surrounded by a very male-dominated environment. And I guess that that kind of structure can alienate some people. Gender decoder, that sounds really interesting. I'm yeah. going to do that for all future. I mean, I have seen job adverts recently that say things like, you know, burning the candle at both ends, and it's just such an immediate turnoff. Um, but do you think things are changing in terms of offering, being genuine, not just saying we will consider flexible working, etc., but actually implementing it? I think there's overall a movement towards more flexible working across genders. And we see reports that talk about how millennial men are actually equally interested in spending time caring for young families. So they will take up more time off work to do that. And also it take, uh, the, the kind of the work structures need to take into account people who maybe don't have children, but also want to spend time outside work catering for their own interests, traveling or, or hiking or whatever their interests might be, um, volunteering for different roles. So increasingly employers are having to look into how they offer that flexible working. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I think the, the problem sometimes isn't in the ad saying flexible working available as much as it is in the, actually the culture of the organization facilitating and allowing that and actually rewarding that in different ways rather than punishing it by not encouraging career progression for people who take up flexible working. Mm -hmm. So let's move to the crux of <laughs> the, the episode, which is about the pay gap and we've discussed before how the onus does seem to often fall on the woman or individual to fight for themselves and to, you know, ask for a pay rise. And I can't count the number of articles that will list, like, make sure, you know, you list out your achievements and book a time with your manager and take you through it step by step. But perhaps there's less written about the burdens that hold us back in the first place and how we can maybe work together more collaboratively or the work that you're doing, for example. So I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about why there's so much focus on the individual woman, such as myself, trying to ask and negotiate rather than it should be fair to start with. I mean, this is an interesting one. I think the narrative was partly started on a more global agenda by Sheryl Sandberg's Cheryl Sandberg's <laughs> yeah. book, Lean In, mm -hmm. talking about the need for women to lean in into the job and put, partly putting it on the woman to actually go for it and strive for it and and, and get that next job or next promotion. Um, and the narrative has grown since then in that it's always talking about how women don't negotiate hard enough, how women don't ask for more money when they offered the job and how that kind of perpetuates the let's fix the women kind of um, attitude. Whereas, um, interestingly enough, the we, we see through data that actually a lot of the issues are with the systems around us, the organizational structures, the policies around us, the way in which society is currently organized and run and the perceptions and stereotypes about different jobs and different roles and different roles within society that actually shape a lot of decisions. And women are often trapped within these frameworks. 
um, there was an interesting article in The Atlantic a couple of years ago talking about how actually women's confidence gap is a myth. Uh, and they did uh, a few research projects uh, with tech companies in Silicon Valley to understand where they are, where the women are on confidence. And they initially started on the hypothesis that women lack the confidence. And as the research was going on, it was becoming more and more evident that women actually don't uh, lack the confidence. It was the fact that they've learned over time that they get penalized for having confidence and therefore they try to show less of it and they talk more about what we did rather than what I did. And they, they, they talk more about the achievements of other people in the team rather than talk about their own personal achievements because then they're being seen as um, emotionally unintelligent and not fit for being promoted into more senior roles. Mm. So it's those stereotypes and those perceptions that are actually creating a, a system in which it's pretty much impossible for women to win. You you can't win if you're not putting yourself forward and you definitely can't win if you are putting yourself forward. So we need to really look closer into these organizational structures, into our perceptions about society to understand how we can shift to this. And we need to do it fast because we're moving into a world where a lot of jobs are being automated. Society is changing, our world is changing constantly because of technology. And unless we do something about creating more inclusivity and equality, we're going to push women altogether out of the economy and no one's going to benefit from that. Well, talking of confidence, um, I remember, it's a, I think Otego Wagba wrote an article for The Cut about the myth that women don't ask for pay rises and it taps into what you were saying because they do, they just don't get them. Yeah. Um, which I thought was very interesting. And also, I wanted to ask you also about potentially another myth you can tell me, but when people say that women often don't want these top jobs, they want to prioritize their work-life balance or you know their family life. Um, in fact, that was one of five factors given by um, Professor Schuller, was it, for his gender gap explanation. Um, I mean, I see it as valid, but I wonder how much it's overplayed. Like, I know personally in my own life, I really appreciate my lunch breaks and my weekends. But is that a, is that a gender thing? Is that being overplayed a bit? I think it's overall... Everybody appreciates mm -hmm. their lunch breaks and having time <laughs> off to do other things outside work. We've just kind of built and so far praised and rewarded people who give up those things in favor of, you know, the, the, the good of the company. But actually, if you start moving collectively towards rethinking, why does that role have to be that? Can that role actually, does it need to be performed by one person if it requires 60 hours a week? Because burnout is becoming increasingly an issue and you have more and more CEOs and executives leaving their jobs because they're not sustainable. Um, and it, I think we're at an interesting point where we can look at data, understand how much people are working. Data can tell you how much time you've spent in meetings, how much time you spend with the team, how much time you've spent putting budgets together so that you can reallocate and delegate some of those things and actually create more inclusivity for everyone and build more prosperity within the company for that. The more people are involved in that decision-making, the more diverse points in that decision-making, the more sustainable 
sustainable the business becomes, the more increase, uh, the more the companies see increase in their earnings, in their share price growth in the the market that they can acquire. So it's an interesting point where we can actually go back and turn to data and say, can this be more than what? Can it can it be different? Does the world need to look the way it looks right now? Mm-hmm. And research shows that women would delegate more than than men would sometimes in an inclusive way and therefore that creates um, again more prosperity for the company and therefore more prosperity for society. And that would speak against that old Margaret Thatcher Queen Bee syndrome wouldn't it? If, if a woman rises to the top and she's seen as somebody who or she may be seen as someone who pulls the drawbridge up that's after her that's a bit of a stereotype. Yeah. But that kind of goes against what you were just saying. Yeah. Um, but maybe that's just speaking to the fact that women feel more threatened because they have to fight harder to get to the top. I mean, again, that could be, that, that in some cases it could be true, but what we see through data as we've looked at it is that if you increase the number of women in senior roles by at least one, the gender pay gap decreases, say, for that department. So if, you, if in a department you have 100 people and you have only one woman in, senior, in a senior role, if you add one more woman into there, the gender pay gap decreases both by mean and by, by median. So it decreases both in terms of the overall averages, but it it also decreases as a draw a line in the middle and identify the kind of the first male, the first female and compare the two, which means in effect that more women at the top help create more equality for everyone in that department or in that company. So it's an interesting juxtaposition to that point where women who would rise to the top would not facilitate for other women to Mm. do the same. Because that leads me on to asking whether we've re- we've really gone beyond the point of focusing on female representation, often just one woman at the very top. So we, we're celebrating all these firsts in history, like the first female police commissioner and the first second female prime minister, etc. But and and then it's going, you know, even further in a great way, like the first black woman, the first disabled woman, etc. But how much change is that actually making? Because I hear what you're saying about. In a de- at a department level, for example, but if we just have this one woman at the pinnacle, is that actually creating change or do we need to move beyond? I think that's one first step okay. towards creating change because we still need to ensure there's visibility. If young women can't see themselves reflected in top roles, in in a prime minister, in a head of NHS, in, in a police commissioner, then they will never think that that could be them when 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 they um, choose a career path. So visibility is still important, but it's it's we need to move towards creating visibility across different levels. It's not just about the one person at the top. It needs to be the person who's second in command. It needs to be about heads of department. It needs to be about managers. There's a lot of work coming out of the Chartered Management Institute about the missing middle and how when you look at companies, they have a lot of women in kind of entry-level jobs. Then they appoint women into more senior roles, a lot of it driven by this agenda that we need companies need to be seen as creating more equality and diversity but the middle is still bare which means that it's a it's a bit of a false when it comes mm. to equality within the organization and we need to ensure that the pipeline offers equal opportunities uh, sustainable opportunities for both genders throughout the company and part of your work is, correct me if I'm wrong, but relying on a bit of transparency from the company. So you would get data, public data, and you get data from what they tell you. But for a layperson like me looking for, for work, you know, I've, I read this study that 
<clears throat> I think over 30% of or 37% of job adverts are posted without salary or even a salary range and it can go as high as 60% in some industries notably industries that women dominate so retail um teaching nursing um so in a world where there is no transparency really i mean we have ndas and in our contracts says don't talk about your salary with anyone else um and i personally remember not even thinking to negotiate because we're often I often felt grateful for being given a job. So given all that, how do how do we actually be more transparent about and getting that paid data and just talking amongst ourselves? Yeah, I think we we live in a world where increasingly we're moving towards transparency. On one hand, we have Glassdoor that is opening all the cards in terms of how much people get paid within the company and the number of people reporting their wages on Glassdoor is increasing and, and uh, at insane like numbers every day. And then on the other hand, you have cases like the BBC where Carrie Gracie very publicly took her case. Uh, she was being the China correspondent and took her case because her counterpart in the US was being paid significantly more than her. So that ended up an equal pay case that she won uh, and subsequently has donated her funds to Fawcett Society. And I was actually very privileged to be at Parliament today at the launch of the new Equal Pay, pay Bill 2020, which aims to do exactly that, to ensure more transparency within a company so that people are more aware about how much other people get paid. And it's okay that there are differences as long as the company can explain why the differences are there and they are valid differences. Um, so we live at interesting times. And, and at the same time, we have cases like Asda and Sainsbury's currently going to Supreme Court because of uh, a lot of equal pay claims within the company where they have um, equal pay for equal value claims because currently people at checkouts, predominantly women, are being paid differently than people, than people in warehouses, predominantly men. And the difference is quite big in terms of pounds per hour. Um, the, the workers are arguing that they bring the same value to the supermarket and the supermarket is arguing that there's different skills and different requirements pressed on the two roles to continue to justify that difference in pay. So there are a lot of forces, both legal um, uh, in terms of transparency and how tech is facilitating that transparency and also big equal pay cases that are really putting pressure on this agenda going forward. And employers who want to be sustainable in the 21st century, who want to attract top talent, they're going to have to start to think about these issues more. Mm. Well, you, you mentioned the Supreme Court. And I mean, do you think that's going to become a kind of precedent for people arguing that certain work is fundamentally undervalued because it's dominated by women. I've heard that a lot recently, if like, you know, teaching, nursing, etc. Um, are seen a certain a certain way and they only become that way when they're dominated by women. So I think it was the director of the Women's Budget Group was giving the example of typists or secretaries. Yeah. It used to all be men. Women didn't work, generally speaking, middle classes anyway. And then it became women dominated and it became undervalued. So how hard do we have to fight to change those perceptions apart from this going to the Supreme Court? I mean, that that's absolutely right. There's research that shows that the more women come into tech in different de departments, the more they drive pay in tech roles down. So it's, a, it's, it's not a, a myth. It's actually... Um, a reality. Um, but it, it should be that the more companies become transparent, the more 
the easier it will be be for people to get paid what they think are valued for the company. And also a lot of companies are going to have to start thinking more about how they pay and remunerate value brought to the company rather than hours spent on a chair doing something. So currently, if you look at the CEO roles and the fact that they have to work 60 plus hours a week and they get remunerated really highly for that, I think we are at a point because of technology, because of automation, because of equal pay and and a big rise in kind of a pressure to uh, create more space for equality and diversity where companies are going to have to rethink how they remunerate their employees. And we no longer live in a nine-to-five world where you can remunerate someone with basic pay for those hours worked and they're moving more towards paying by value and the value that you bring into the company. And there are quite a few startups that are starting to think like that and how they remunerate their employees in that way. I was going to ask you about startups, actually, because the the stereotype of a the stereotype uh, image of a startup is you know the beanbag chairs and the open plan office, and then we're all we're doing everything differently. But is that actually the case? Because a lot of these people come into tech startup land with a traditional background, and they often go to the same schools, have the same attitudes. I mean, is it is it really a playground for real change? Well, if you look at startups in, in the tech space, then uh, Atomico report on state of tech in Europe for last year shows that less than 1% funding, VC funding, went to female-led companies, which means that uh, 99% of funding went to male teams. And that in itself already t- paints a picture about how those companies are, are, are led uh, by the founders. Um I think, I mean, having having been a startup, there's a lot of pressure to recruit quickly, to get talent in quickly. So sometimes I can understand how thinking about diversity and inclusion can, can be the last thought on your mind when you actually need someone to do this job. Tomorrow you will employ the first person who comes through the door. You will put the ad quite quickly out there without running it through gender decoder and, and seeing whether or not it will attract any female candidates in the first place. And you don't really have time to think about how you can take someone, hire someone for the attitude and the passion for what you do, and then training them for the skills because you need the skills tomorrow. Investors are putting pressure on you to deliver on the skills tomorrow. And the fast-paced environment of tech is forcing a lot of companies to have a start that is not necessarily thoughtful of inclusivity and diversity. But once they get settled in a little bit, it's still there's still space and time for companies to rethink how they're structured before they start growing even further. So when, when you're still going up to 50 employees or 100 employees, there's still space for you to quite quickly turn things around and have an impact on culture quite quickly rather than when you have 120,000 employees and a set culture, then it's more difficult to shift anything in a short span of time. But that would still have an impact on who would start up a company in the first place, right? And I guess you have personal experience of that as well as the funding issue, which we've talked about before. It was quite difficult for you to obtain as a female-led business. Yeah, still is. Still is. Yeah. Mm. Um, What do you think about what happened at the BBC, and it may have happened elsewhere, about men actually taking pay cuts? to match their female counterparts. I mean it's an interesting it's an interesting space. We need men to be involved in this agenda otherwise we're not going to be able to make progress. Men are still uh, dominate a lot of the decision making roles in companies and governments so without their 
support, we wouldn't be able to actually shift the needle on this. Uh, but at the same time, I, I would be mindful about how much more power we give men in terms of taking decisions around how equality happens and how women then have access to equality. So um, I think I think it's it's a good step in terms of raising awareness and actually standing up as an ally. But at the same time, more power would come from those men helping change the structure, helping change the the uh, policies in an organization, helping change recruitment process, helping change how they think about uh, career progression. A lot of decisions about promotions still happen by the urinals because a lot of the decision makers <laughs> would use them and they have a quick chat there and that's it. It's sorted. Steve is going to be the new CFO starting tomorrow. So it's it's about how being more mindful about things like that. Yes, it makes things happen quicker, but actually if you follow a process, you're more likely to get a more suitable candidate in that role. Mm, that's interesting because for all the data and technology we have, how do we fundamentally change networking and human attitudes of, of, of liking someone and then thinking, okay, well, we'll just take them or kind of very caveman, but it happens all the time. It, it does happen all the time. Uh, and people tend to like people like themselves. This mm -hmm. is why a lot of the funding in tech goes to still white, middle-class, middle-aged men, mm -hmm. because a lot of the men who give out the funding see themselves in those founders and say, oh, I was just like that, a graduate from Oxford, you know, new into the world, thinking about biochemistry. So immediately funding, there's that affiliation and funding goes there. It's easier to network and go to golf events. It's easier to go away for the weekend skiing um, and and things like that. So there's when we rethink this agenda, there needs to be a holistic rethink. And these men who are taking the pay cuts need to be part of a wider system change in terms of decision-making doesn't happen on a ski trip to mm -hmm. France over mm -hmm. a weekend with my buddies, but it will actually happen on Monday when I can sit down with the team and we can identify the best candidate going forward. Because mm. I can just imagine taking a pay cut would just fuel resentment rather than endear you to the, the wider cause, but I could, I could be wrong. Um, I know that this isn't necessarily your remit, but let's see. Um, if you put yourself in the shoes of a woman who might have found out that she's either applying for a job or she's in a job and found out that she's not getting paid fairly, does the data actually show us then asking, making a, making a fuss or, or putting forward that case could actually penalise you? Is it better to leave the job, do you think, from your experience? Is it better to um, fight collectively, join a trade union? And what, what would your advice be? I mean, interestingly enough, I was at this uh, parliament meeting in the morning and trade unions have not historically been great at uh, facilitating equality across genders. Um, uh, leaving the job, I think, so initially when gender pay gap legislation was introduced in the UK, Young Women's Trust did a report about how young women feel about gender pay gaps within companies. And uh, they ran kind of two big questions. Would you buy services and products from a company with a high gender pay gap? Would you work for a company that has a high gender pay gap? And both those questions came with like really striking results. Over 80% young women said they would not buy services and products and they would not go and have a job with a company that has a high gender pay gap. I think we haven't yet managed to, to raise a lot of awareness about these high gaps um, so that 
young people are more aware about where what the what the gaps are in companies that they're going to. Um, at the same time, um, I think if me- both men and women stopped taking jobs with companies that have significant gaps, that don't pay minimum wage, that have uh, that don't pay into pension funds, the more likely we are to have an impact on that company creating any change and actually restructuring how they remunerate and compensate their talent. Mm. So do your research first as well. Yes, yeah, definitely. As much as it's available. Um, I wanted to come back to two, it's anecdotal, but two very senior women recently at separate events said things which I found quite depressing. One was um, a woman who made a career out of being on boards after being very, very senior at corporates. And she was asked, well, why don't certain board roles pay? Like at university, if you're on the board of a university, for example. And she said, well, we have no problem recruiting fantastic people to the job. So why would we? <laughs> that was the first thing that depressed me. And the second thing was a separate event where a very senior woman, I think at a financial institution, described how she acted like a man. And that's the advice she would give to other women is to, you know, get your elbows out to a certain extent and dress smartly. And, you know, it's just, it all adds up to the same attitude where I just think even people who are very, very senior and have seen it all for themselves, that I'm not saying they're not willing to help other women. They are, that's why they're there. But they seemed, it's almost like, not brainwashing, but just yeah. from the outside perspective, it just doesn't look right. And I wondered, have you personally come across that? And do you think there's a reason women, a lot of women in senior positions feel that way? I mean, it's interestingly enough, I've been told that when I went into tech meetings and I was meeting VCs, I was told after a few meetings that I best stopped wearing dresses and start wearing trouser suits more so that I would fit better into the groups that I was um, talking to. Clearly, it didn't happen because <laughs> I'm wearing a dress right now. But um, it, it both of these issues that you've mentioned are more about fitting into a framework, mm-hmm. fitting into the current system that does not work for women and does not work for ethnic minorities, does not work for anyone with protected characteristics. It only works for white, middle-class, middle-aged men. So if we try, the more we try to fit into it, the more we adapt to it and the more we perpetuate it. And it's more about finding a way to change that system. Uh, I've come across the non-paying, non-exec board roles before, and I still can't understand how do companies and organizations expect to get diverse talent in there if they're not going to compensate for that board role. Uh, They're going to continuously just get candidates who come from the same kind of middle-age background, middle-class background that allows them to take time off to do that job because they don't have the pressure of generating revenue uh, for the family um, and similarly for for the for the what you wear and mm-hmm. how you wear mm-hmm. um, interestingly enough I was at I was at Davos a couple of weeks ago and mm-hmm. I heard a talk that I found really interesting and it was about purpose and how purpose is actually, so last century. And I initially I was like, what? what are you trying to say? No, purpose is everything. But the talk was more around how purpose is more about your individual purpose or your company purpose, whereas the next step up is how you change the system so that the ch- system works for everyone. Because as long as we all work for our own individual purposes, progress is quite slow. But if we actually take a stab at the system and we say we don't want to operate in this world that rewards 
only higher returns on investment rather than creating an inclusive culture that rewards only, you know, the bottom line rather than the creation of more jobs or upskilling of employees or creating a culture where everyone can thrive and make the most of their talents. Mm. So I I think that in in both of those cases, to me, it just highlights the need to overhaul the system and, and change the world around us. But at the same time, um, more and more women are working for themselves. I'm freelance um, and we've got this gig economy and you've mentioned, you know, technology and fast changing world that we're in. But is it slightly the wrong focus to, you know, zoom in so much on employers when so many of us are no longer employed? Well, it's it's certainly interesting because if... Let's look at gender pay gap legislation. So gender pay gap legislation applies to companies with 250 employees or more. And even then, when you look at those employees and workers, you only look at a certain type of employees that fit criteria for being calculated and included. So contractors would usually not be included in those calculations. We've seen a lot of companies kind of break into smaller companies or actually um, let go of their lower paid staff and subcontract that work to another company and therefore not have the responsibility to think about it, report about it or, you know, get negative press about it. So that is going to become more and more an issue as we move into this world where tech kind of dominates the, the tech companies dominate how and what we do. And, and they're smaller companies generally. Yes. At least when they start up. Yes, when they start up. But they create, they have such an impact on the economy. Uber is having a massive impact on the economy in terms of the drivers who who drive the cars. Um, Airbnb is creating a massive impact on the economy in terms of who the landlords are and how people start spending their time and how they generate their revenue by renting out their rooms or their houses rather than doing something else. And both have really interesting implications on gender, with, for instance, Uber facilitating and creating more um, jobs for women in countries where women don't necessarily work as taxi drivers. So there's that kind of positive impact where in countries like Egypt, you have all of a sudden more female drivers, more women with money in their pocket, therefore more empowered women, more uh, women with access to, to their economic rights. But at the same time, when you look at Airbnb, there are a lot of women listed on as being owners of the um, flats or the houses. But in fact, when you look deeper into research, it's men who own the properties. The women are just the front-facing part of it. So it's it's still early days in terms of how those companies are reshaping the economy and we have a big role to play into how they're going to reshape that economy going forward. Mm. I must say, I always feel a lot of relief when an Uber driver is a woman. (laughs) But anyway, on that note, thank you so much, Sarah. It was really interesting. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Next up, I asked Hayley Milhouse, who is Head of Advisor Services at our sponsor, Open Money, to give her view on how we should react practically and financially speaking if we suspect that we aren't being treated fairly or being paid equally at work. 
First thing I'd say is don't act on impulse without considering all consequences. And I know sometimes that's really hard not to when the subject is so emotive, like women getting equal pay. But it is a really hot and important topic um, for consideration because it does impact on the overall financial future of women, particularly around um, where we look at pension contributions because pension contributions are based on a percentage of your um, qualifying earnings. But what responsible employers are doing now is putting a lot of focus on this. So I would suggest your first port of call is to speak with your line manager or your HR consultant just to understand what is the company's position. And actually, is there any initiatives that are due to come about with regards to looking at equality and the pay gap within your company? Without a sufficient cash buffer, so quitting your job um, without you having that, it would put you in a real vulnerable position, particularly if you don't have another role to go into. This could only widen the implications for your future if you do start to default on your bills or have to rely on credit such as overdrafts or credit cards to meet your essential expenditure. Thank you so much for listening to the first episode of Series 3 of An Honest Account. It would be a massive help if you could rate, review or subscribe or all of them to this podcast. It only takes a second. It's free. You can do it on Podbean, iTunes or pretty much wherever you listen to podcasts. Please get in touch at contact at anhonestaccount.co.uk with feedback, ideas for episodes, or if you have your own money query you want to be answered. You can also tweet us at honest underscore account underscore. We're on Instagram and we'll be back next week. Thank you.